0: Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. I am so glad you've joined me for another episode of the show. Today on the show, I'm going to talk to you about the fundamental design of your business and an element of that design that I think is utterly crucial for creating even sort of the possibility of scale, the possibility of real and meaningful growth. If you can get this one thing right then you gotta get some other stuff right too. There's no one magic trick to winning in e-commerce, unfortunately. I wish there was. I would tell you about it if I knew it. But if you get this one thing right and you can pair it with some good tactics and good strategies, you can get pretty far in your business. I'm gonna tell you what it is, how I think you can do it. Let's jump in. So this crucial thing in your business that I wanna talk about today is very, very simple in one sense. And when you grasp this concept, you can sort of see how important it is. It's something you've heard about, but I just, I think it's really crucial to get right. And it's this, in some way or another, to have a sort of meaningfully scalable business, you must grow organic revenue into your business. In some way or another, organic revenue must be grown into your business. There are a few ways people do that. Some of them are tactical, and you might think that I'm about to go jump in to go building out your SEO or something like that. But I want to think less tactically for a minute. I should say, those are viable options for some people. There are people who have built communities in incredible ways, who build big YouTube followings in incredible ways, and those are great stories. I, though, want to talk about something else. What I want to talk about is building organic revenue into your product itself, into the product design of your business, into the product release schedule of your business, and into the marketing calendar of your business related to that, basically what I want to say is in some way or another, you have to be able to multiply the value of the first purchase that you generate into non-paid revenue. So here's what I mean. If you follow all of the things that I have talked about recently on this show to grow a great Facebook ad account, I've laid out a few things that I think are really crucial there. I've argued that you should not diversify away from your ad spend on Facebook. I think that you should focus more there because it is so outsized in its value and its ability to create value in your business. I've argued that at times you should actually resist creative testing on Facebook, though I think creative testing is really crucial in a lot of different ways and have said probably on the Don't Diversify episode that you should creative test. I laid out a case for when you should not creative test, when you should resist the temptation to go do that, and actually you should double down on the things that are working in your business. I've suggested all kinds of things like that for how to win with Facebook ads. I had my interview with Bill Alessandro about contribution margin and understanding that, replacing revenue metrics with that. So you're thinking about profit. Those things all matter so much. Getting those things right matters so much. But, and you knew the butt was coming there, those things all have a limited ceiling in their ability to impact your business if they do not generate revenue additional to the first purchase that they drive. If all you can get out of those is that first purchase and the profit that you get, the contribution margin that you get from that first purchase, there is a limited ceiling to that. Now, I should be careful here. The ceiling there is not so limited that you can't still create a worthwhile business. If you know my story and working with Forever 100, you know about FC Goods, business where we made wallets out of old baseball gloves and we grew that business to a few million bucks and sold it. Almost entirely based on our ability to generate seasonal revenue during both Father's Day and the sort of traditional holiday period, Black Friday through Christmas, because that product was a gift product. And basically, that entire business was built on our ability to sell wallets to people one time. There was essentially no LTV in that business. There was actually a little bit, but there was essentially no LTV in that business. And that was not a product quality problem. People loved the product quality. But gift purchasers very often are not repeat purchases. I've seen this across a lot of different businesses. And FC Goods, though we had some attempts, never really was able to generate second purchases off of that first purchase. Somebody would buy a product, mostly they would gift it. Maybe they'd get it for themselves. That was it. They just never bought that. So this is a classic challenge with gift purchases because gift purchasers are buying it for somebody else. And even if that gift wows somebody else, that person who receives the gift was not the person who first got interested in the brand, and therefore they are not very loyal to your brand. So neither of them is often very loyal to your brand, actually. Neither one of them. Neither the purchaser who has bought their gift, and I don't know, it feels weird to buy the same gift for multiple people, I think, most times, depending on the gift. And then the recipient of it also isn't. And so what happened with that business? Well, we saw, we could see very clearly that FC Goods had a ceiling, it was around a few million bucks. And on the e commerce playbook podcast, we talked about what that ceiling was. And it generated a profit at a few million dollars with a very simple strategy around Google ads and Facebook ads and generating profit off of first purchase up to some amount of scale. A few million dollars is not a tiny business. There's some meaningful business there. And that business sold and had a good outcome. And so there you go you can do that. That is a pathway. But I think really to get past that stage it is very, very, very hard unless you are 95th percentile plus in your ability to run digital ads. And there are people out here who are like this, who are just absolute tactical strategy killers in digital advertising and can just go crack any ad account in any platform anywhere. You think about the Ridge Wallet guys, right? Same category as that. Before they started releasing additional products relative to the wallet, and I have no idea how that's done for them in terms of LTV. I mean, they're just machines. I think Sean Frank tweeted the other day that they have like five full-time people whose entire job is to get influencer deals for Ridge. They have put incredible amount of resources towards doing this. And so they have mastered the art of digital advertising. So you can do that, but you have to get that good at it if you want to grow a large and meaningful business by doing that. So let's set that aside for a second. If that's one pathway, the pathway that most of us actually want to pursue in the businesses that we do, and actually a pathway that we tried at FC Goods a little bit and a pathway that if I could have FC Goods back, I would have put more effort into earlier in more significant ways is to find some way so that that first purchase creates additional purchases. Now, there there's two ways in which this can happen to illustrate this point. The first is, and the most obvious, is repeat revenue off the first purchase, okay? LTV. It's that somebody buys a product from you the first time, and after they buy that product from you the first time, they have a reason to come back and buy more products from you. There are a lot of ways this looks in different businesses. In consumable products, this is a really obvious thing, right? If you are selling like bamboo earth skincare, right? The whole business works because people use the products and then they like the products and they come back and they buy more of those same products from you. So that's the business model. You generate whatever, you know, your financial goal is on that first purchase and then repeat revenue comes in and creates a bunch of profit. And that's the way the business works, okay? And so lots of consumable products do that. That's sort of the key to that business model most times. It's really competitive on first purchase most times, and so you have to bank the LTV, and that ends up being this really crucial thing. So that's one way to do it. If you have consumable products, that's probably what you need to be doing to be building into your business. Now, it doesn't always work for consumable products. Again, to use another 4.500 brand example, Slick products never had great LTV despite being a consumable product. So wash products for vehicles, and I think part of it is just takes forever to go through those products. It created some LTV, but not much you know, relatively low amounts, especially for a consumable. And that was just not going to be the pathway to creating additional value in that business. And so this is where all kinds of tactics come and support this strategy. But basically the product itself is consumable. Something I think people underplay is the possibility of generating consumable products in businesses that are otherwise not consumable. If you can find some way to layer on a consumable product additional to your core product, it can work. An example of this would be, Patrick talked about this a little bit. If you go back and listen to my interview with him about supply, one of the things that they added to razors, and this is what all the razor companies do, right, is they added CPG, basically, right? They added consumable things like beard oils and that kind of stuff to try to get people to come back on those products. That was the business design there, was that would be the way to do it. Because ultimately, you could sort of sell more blades, although that wasn't a huge revenue item, as Patrick talked about there. Or you could try to get people into sort of these secondary products additional to the razor, but complementary to the razor that would then create some LTV off the back end of that. Go back and listen to my interview with Patrick about selling supply. You'll hear him talk about that a little bit. So that's one way to do it. In fact, for most other brands, something like the apparel example is the way you end up doing this. Apparel does this a very obvious way. They do it with product releases, new designs in an apparel brand to get you coming back once you trust and love the brand. Okay. I have seen multiple apparel brands where they generate a ton of LTV because of this once somebody loves the way some apparel fits or feels or makes them look or whatever it is, they will come back and buy more of it from you if they love it like that. And so releasing more products as regularly as possible can be really good. I saw one brand that got awesome at this to where they were releasing updated products, new products specifically on payday, on at least most people's payday in the US. I was like, you know, every two Fridays or whatever. They had figured out when most people's paydays were. they were releasing new products every two weeks in order to generate returning customer revenue over time, it really propelled the forward movement of their business. People love the product and they would just release, 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 release. And those releases did really great. When you look at the revenue models for apparel businesses like this and businesses that are regularly releasing new products like that, they're really spiky. If you look at the revenue f- for the course of a year, instead of it being sort of like slow curves up and down relative to seasonality and ad spend and those kinds of things where there's some evergreen ads running all the time, which we might see for Bamboo Earth, you know, it would be something like this, right? Consumable products, where you're just trying to kind of feed the beast and keep the wheel turning over time. Apparel businesses and product release businesses like this, the way the revenue looks is really spiky. It goes up and down, it looks like an EKG or something, or like a Richter scale, where it's just like, suddenly there's a big peak and then a valley and then a peak and then a valley and then a peak and the valley. And, then a valley and then they all correspond to product releases. And that's because that's the way you drive value in the business. So it becomes really important to do that. But core to that is just the ability to keep generating products people like. And this is true for all kinds of businesses where the fundamental thing that people like about it is the aesthetic. If the aesthetic is what you're selling, then trying to find complementary products to the initial thing, whether it's the same product, you know, like apparel, right, where it's like another shirt, or additional products, and this would be like complimentary home good products, something like that. You can end up saying, okay, you like this one, here's another one, and you like this design as well. So apparel and consumable work that way. And then of course, like more generally there is product expansion. So if I could have FC goods back, like I said, I would be thinking about what additional products. And again, we thought about this some. could we release that are going to win here? Is it additional gift products? Is it additional baseball products? Do you try to, you know, make new versions of things out of old versions of things in other ways, you know, like make a wall out of a baseball glove. Could you find other things that kind of fit that formula? I don't know. I'm I have thought about it for a while, but that's something I'd be thinking about because if there's some way I could make it, we tried hats a little bit to see if we could get people engaged with the brand that way. Just none of it really took ultimately and there's, I think, all kinds of reasons for that. But that's what I would be killing myself to answer. How can I go and create that second product? The reason to do that is because people love your first product and now you wanna go create more value out of it. So then the question I would be asking is, what do people love about this product? Why are people buying it? Not why did I make it? Because it ends up being the case that customers will use your product and love your product sometimes for different reasons and for different use cases than you even think of. And so the goal then becomes how do i respond to what my customers are saying as well as possible, create complementary products that lean into the elements of this product that people really love and go from there. That's the question that i would be asking. How can i do that as effectively as possible? Okay? In all of those cases, repeat purchase ends up being a big part of the goal. Now, I also talked about recently the idea that this would be a hidden driver of customer acquisition. I did an episode talking about how product releases end up fueling customer acquisition because new products also create value around being able to test new products as new ads in your ad account. And that's completely true. And I kind of glossed over in that episode the idea that this would be used for LTV. But what I really want you to think about for a second is the math of how this works, right? Let's say I have 60 points of margin, okay, on a product and i can acquire customers at break even on that first product. That would be a normal amount of margin for a lot of brands to have and if i can go break even on that, you know, then i can somewhere around like a 1.4 ROAS basically. If i can do that, then i can end up generating break even, get my money back on that first product purchase. That means that on that second purchase, right, i am essentially making my contribution margin assuming i'm not spending additional ad dollars to create it on that second purchase. I am creating what is functionally 60 points of contribution margin. So it becomes this huge value add. And now I've averaged 30 points of contribution margin across my first two purchases, no matter how you define, I know we talked about how you define contribution margin, but like essentially contribution to the actual bottom line of the business, net of OPEX, all of that consideration, you know, being there. But if I can get a third purchase, right, and a fourth purchase and a fifth purchase, if you can generate really incredible LTV, then it's very easy to imagine how quickly you have an incredibly profitable business. And if what you are trying to design is a business that you can sell, and you're gonna sell that business on the bottom line, which is how you are gonna sell the business, that is going to be the value of the business. Then the ability to make it so that after that first purchase, I am generating a ton of cash on future purchases on not too long of a timeline, then I have a very valuable and very scalable business because now I can go acquire customers aggressively, see cash roll in over time, and generate a whole bunch of bottom line revenue where every one of those purchases goes pop right to the bottom line. And I've, you know, seen businesses that are like, you know, generating seriously three, four hundred percent of the additional AOV over the LTV. What I mean by that is somebody spends $100 on day one, that very first purchase with you or day zero, I guess it would be that first purchase with you that over time, that customers actually worth three and $400 to you, all of that money additional, let's call it $400, right? All of that $300 between the first 100 and the additional 300 of that $400 of the customer's value to you on average, right? All of that additional revenue is incredibly margin positive to your business. And margin is the thing that gets squeezed all the time in your business, especially if you're scaling with Facebook ads, right? It's really hard to run your ads and have margin left over at the end of the day. It was just not 2016 anymore with ads. It's really hard to do that. There are brands who do it, but it's really hard to do that. It's especially hard to do that at meaningful scale. So if you can bank the future value, then you can end up creating a ton of value on the business before you even talk about how secondary products and you know and product development create additional value for new ads and those sorts of things. So the repeat purchases really matter. There is another way to do this. It illustrates the same principle, right? Which is sort of once I acquire that first customer, that customer acquisition itself creates additional value. And that's what I'm really saying here, right? I pay for that first purchase and then after that, the additional purchases are very low cost or even no cost, okay? And that is with word of mouth or network effects, that kind of thing, you know, especially word of mouth specifically, where a customer may or may not buy a second time from me, but them having my product ends up getting my product into more hands, okay? I have seen this in almost anything where there's a niche community. We saw a little bit of this, I think, at Kalo, when we were running Kalo. If you haven't seen the Kalo story, QALO, Kalo, silicone wedding rings, where I got my start in e-commerce. It was one of the places where I had Taylor holiday, had sort of grew up in e-commerce. He didn't quite get a start there. He'd started before that. But What happened was that like, you know, when we invested in CrossFit at Kalo, we saw all of a sudden, all kinds of other CrossFitters wearing Kalo rings. And that's because it just became this word of mouth thing. People started seeing them in the gym. And sometimes people, especially if they would wear brighter colors or something, and they would ask about them and say, oh, what is that ring that you're wearing? My wedding ring annoys me in the gym too. It's a closed community where people see each other a lot. There's just some products that are specific for those people and word of mouth matters. Any product that's sort of into a niche community like that where there's real sort of a closed nature of that community. By closed, I don't mean that they're necessarily exclusive with people, but just that there's some central meeting places and consistent engagement I think you know what I mean, right? CrossFit is an example. Surfing can be an example of this, where people are seeing each other a lot. We actually thought that there might be more of this and hope there might be more of this in the dirt bike community when we were running slick and never really invested there quite as much as we should have, I think, to really go maximize this kind of word of mouth element of things. But, But those kinds of communities, sort of enthusiast communities, like that's probably a better word for it, is enthusiast. This can work really well. And sometimes it can also just be something related to the product itself. So I think Simple Modern, who I worked with before, is a good example of this. From survey data, at least, it seems that many people got their first simple modern drinkware because somebody else had bought one and told them about it, my wife absolutely loves her Simple Modern Tumblr. And she is fully planning on this year on taking it to a party that she goes to every year called a Favorite Things Party with her friends where they all bring one or two things that were their favorite things from the year and just, enjoy. here's what it is, here's why you will like it. And it's a really fun idea. They just talk about different elements of that. And one of her favorite things this year is going to be her Simple Modern Tumblr because she loves it so much. That is word of mouth happening on the business. And if you think about that product, people take their water bottle or their tumbler everywhere with them all the time. It often is colorful in some way. Or maybe if bought a Disney one, maybe it's licensed and people see the Disney thing. Oh, where'd you get that? It's also Out front and public, right? Think about this compared to socks. No matter how much I love my (laughs) William Painter socks that I bought, which Aaron Orndorff convinced me to buy on Twitter. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for telling me about that. They're great. And I'd known William Painter before, but I love my William Painter socks. People are not really going to see them on me, right? (laughs) Like, they're ankle socks. And no matter how much I love them, nobody's going to see them. Compare that to a Tumblr where it is out in front of me all the time. I'm walking around with it. People see it. They know it. If I go to somebody's house, sometimes I have it. All those kinds of things. So, I mean, I take my water bottle with me everywhere. So, there can be a word of mouth effect on that first purchase. And what that means is when somebody buys that product, it's endemic to the product itself. Another example of this that is a great example of this before, unfortunately, COVID ruined this for this particular product. It was house, aperitifs, alcohol. House was a really different kind of alcohol in that space. And if you know anything about how people drink, right, if I'm having you over and I have this drink from house, H-A-U-S, if you don't know house, and I love it, I'm going to serve it to you to try to like be a good host and impress you and go, oh my gosh, have you tried this? It's so good. The product itself naturally lends to a sharing element. Now, House, as it happens, also, of course, lends to repeat customer revenue with LTV. But although sometimes the repeat on alcohol takes a long time, depending on how often people are drinking a particular thing like that, it's kind of a party drink. It was probably not something that people are going to be making as their go-to or like a hosting drink, I should say. So House had relied a lot on word of mouth in their advertising and I know it had structured a lot of their visuals and their brand to sort of try to encourage sharing of it as much as possible and position it as a drink to support somebody when they come over and you hang out with them at your house, that kind of deal. Of course, that ended up creating big problems when COVID happened and suddenly nobody was hanging out with anybody and all of the word of mouth went away. And that is something that they have attributed to their unfortunate demise since then, but pretty impossible to control that it happened. I think otherwise it was a really smart idea. So you could see how that works. In any case, it's the same thing. Something about the nature of the product itself lends to that repeat purchase. And this is the crucial thing. If you're building your business, you control the products you make. No matter what product you started with, you control what products come next. And it is worth focusing your attention on doing that because that is where you create so much value in the business. Now, here's the thing I want to say about how to do this. I'm trying to illustrate as clearly as possible that there is a a tremendous amount of value in doing this. The value comes down to the product itself. So if you think about the mechanisms for putting this into your business, the first thing to notice is that this is not primarily a tactical issue. It might actually be impossible to like double your retention, your repeat revenue with like better email and SMS. It's just really hard. to do. We hammered away at this for so long with Slick, but you know what? At the end of the day, people only needed so much car wash stuff. And no matter how much stuff we did to try to generate repeat revenue off that core product, it just didn't matter that much because the people's repeat behavior off of it was endemic to the product itself. It was about how people use the product. And so the actual way that if we wanted to generate repeat revenue off that product, that we were gonna be able to do it, was gonna have to come down at least to some degree more to changing either the product offering that we had or the way people used the product initially. Otherwise, we just weren't gonna be able to do it. We just weren't gonna be able to create repeat revenue. And that's part of what I'm getting at here is if you think about this problem in your business, you can't think about it just tactically. I wanna just free you from the idea that your retention tactics are holding you back that much. Like, I do think you can help and every five to 10% really does help. I'm for retention and marketing. I'm for it, I really am. But I don't think it is most likely the thing that is going to make this part of your business most viable. What you need to do to get this right is to think about the product itself and the way your customer relates to the product itself. This is something I've come back to over and over recently, which is that there are actually kind of only two things at the end of the day that are at the core DNA of every business, a product and a customer. And understanding and getting the relationship between those two things right is the fundamental thing in your business. It's the most important thing. You know, that can include all kinds of things related to how you manufacture the product and the supply chain of the product and all those kinds of things to get the product right. It can, all kinds of issues related to who the customer is and how you put it in front of them and how you frame it. But ultimately, understanding the relationship between your customer and your product is the core thing. And that's what's going to have the largest effect on this particular issue, whether people talk about it, whether people buy more of it themselves. It's not primarily a tactical thing. And so if you see somebody out there telling you, hey, if you use these tactics, go dig in, take the time, go spend the time learning these tactics so you can generate a whole bunch more revenue for retention, like I'm just telling you, it's almost for sure wrong. It's just almost for sure wrong. Instead, if you have subpar LTV, put more time into thinking about what do I need to do with the product itself to make sure I get that right? Or if you wanna affect it with word of mouth to do it that way. And that ends up being the crucial thing. That means if the mechanisms for accomplishing this are first, not primarily tactics, then second, one of the crucial things here is your product quality. I actually think it's overstated to say you know, product quality is the most important thing and you can't build a great business on a subpar product. Like (laughs) you and I have just all experienced products that are not that good that people have run very good businesses off of. And so like it's overstated, but I think there's real truth when people say like, ultimately the product quality is the thing that matters. There is a lot of truth in that and it does really matter for this particular issue. It just does. It matters a lot for this particular issue. If people don't really love your product, it's just gonna be a lot harder to create serious LTV off of it. It's gonna be a lot harder to create serious word of mouth off of it. Again, let's come back to the FC Goods example. It's not the whole thing, right? Because people did seem to love that product. They're very satisfied with it. We delivered on the promise that we offered people there from every possible indication, but you just didn't need a second wallet, right? So that was the problem there. You know, I think people also seem to really like Slick. It was reviewed very well. That didn't seem to be the problem. So this is not the whole thing but it is a crucial thing. Even if it's not a sufficient condition for creating repeat revenue, it's close to a necessary condition. I hope you understand what I mean by that. A sufficient condition would mean if you accomplish this one thing, you will for sure get this outcome. I just gave you two examples where that's not true. And it's not 100% necessary, as I said. There are plenty of brands that grow and do well without being a really, truly great product. But if you can get your product exactly right to where it is really good and people really seriously love it, it will make your job so much easier in this area. Number three, aim your product development at this. Aim your product development at this. As you do this, think very hard, not just about sort of product development for its own sake, but really trying to think about how your customer will relate to this next product. I don't want to belabor this because it's just the most obvious point, it ends up being really important to think down this pathway as much as possible. If you can layer in additional products often that are similar at first to your product, and then over time that sort of take small steps away from that first product until you expand and expand and maybe use those to fuel more customer acquisition, etc., then you can end up doing very well here. This is a real challenge. It is not easy to do this, especially once you've been positioned as one particular thing. But if you can think about this really carefully and build a product development process that is aimed specifically at this issue, over time, you can make a meaningful impact on it. And number four, this is an underrated thing, but one of the other elements that's core to this is sales. Sales do generate repeat revenue. You got to be careful with them for all kinds of reasons, but they do generate repeat revenue. And again, to come back to the apparel example from earlier, sometimes those revenue charts that I said look like an EKG or a Richter scale reading often have a bunch of spikes for new product releases, but then they also have a bunch of spikes for sales. Apparel brands just like famously have these. like They're just going to run between, you know, four and six sales a year or whatever it is, if not more than that. And they're going to generate repeat revenue on those because people like buying their clothes that they're going to wear at a discount and that's fine. So they're just going to buy more. And so planning those moments into your calendar as well can make a huge impact here. In the end, the goal is to create value in your business via bottom line profit. And this is the crucial thing. It is incredibly hard to do that at any meaningful scale. If the experience of your product itself does not create additional value off the first one, it doesn't have to be truly viral to where it is actually growing. So that once you acquire that first customer, the first customer creates two and then those two customers create two more each and then and so on to where like you acquire one customer and now you've got a sort of virally growing business. It doesn't have to be like that. But to at least have some long-term value off that first customer makes a huge difference to creating value. It will make, if you want to grow to 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, and so on, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly hard to do that without getting this right. So there you have it. I hope that was helpful to you as always. And there's some fundamental things in a business that you have to get right and focus on. And then you can go attack a bunch of smaller issues. And understanding the ranking of those things relative to your goals is actually one of the core parts of strategy, just knowing where to put your energy and crucially where not to put your energy. So for me, this is one of those things that you probably have heard in some way or another, but I think it's worth highlighting just as an area of focus that really matters and can compound the value of everything else you're doing if you're trying to grow, like I said, a reasonably scalable business in any way. So again, hope that was helpful to you. We are wrapping towards the end of the year here, and I wanna just alert you to a couple of episodes I have coming up that I think you're really gonna like. If this is the first time you've listened to my show or anything like that, I think you're going to really enjoy these episodes. And actually, not sure which order I'm gonna release them in yet, but one of those is an interview with Bear Handlin, the founder of Born Primitive, an apparel brand that you may or may not know of depending on the sort of circles that you run in, but it is one of the best e-commerce businesses I've ever seen run. Bear is one of my favorite operators I've been around. I've been around him for a while now. And I'm really excited to have him on the show to sort of unpack what has made that business successful. There's a lot to learn from that business. Really, really strong fitness apparel business. The other one is, Taylor Holiday, and I got together to do sort of a shared episode across both his e-commerce playbook podcast and my podcast, to releasing both feeds, just sort of some end-of-the-year reflections on particularly the idea of getting wisdom, which may be something that you're thinking of as related to e-commerce, and we certainly are thinking about it as related to e-commerce, but I think broader than that as well, and essentially learning from our mistakes and learning from the experience that you've had on how to do that well and why that's important. So I think that is a great episode that turned out really good and that you will really get a lot of benefit from, especially if you've had a hard year. You know, we're getting to that kind of time of year where reflecting on what's gone on is important and so hopefully that's some help to you hey if you want to work with me in some way or another you can go see everything that i'm doing at ajfgrowth.com and i would love to hear from you about this show if you have thoughts questions anything like that email me at podcast at ajfgrowth.com and then also go find me dm me tag me publicly on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. That's what my Twitter handle is. Okay, that stumbling over those little bit of words means this show needs to end. So let's do that right now. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening this year as we get towards the end of the year. I will see you next time.